Welcome back to another episode of The Forge. If you're listening, you'll be hearing this audio, and this will be my first attempt at video. So welcome to our viewers as well as our listeners. I took a small break after our last study through the entire book of Genesis, and I thought now was a good time to kind of get back into the swing of things. And we're going to be looking at the book of Jude for this next study, the book of Jude. Uh, and if you're looking for this book and you're, you have your Bible, you may be wondering where is the book of Jude. The book of Jude is the next to the last book of the Bible. So the last book of the Bible is Revelation. You'll notice that I said singular revelation, not revelations, which is plural. And sometimes people will say revelations, and what they really mean is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, John the Revelator, as he has been called. So the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and right next to that, um, is the book of Jude. We used to, there used to be a song, I don't know if it's sung anymore among children, but there was a song that would help children to memorize the books of the Bible, and the last few words were John, John, Jude, and Revelation. And of course that refers to uh, second, third John, and then Jude, and then Revelation. And I would just, you know, remind you, since I'm talking about this. There's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and do not confuse those with the Gospel of John. So we have the Gospel of John, then there are, toward the end of your Bible, there are three uh, short letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, then Jude, then Revelation. So hopefully that's helpful to you in finding this book. Once you, if you're using a study Bible and once you strip away all the notes and all the study aids and cross references and everything, and you simply look at the Bible, the words of the Bible, the book of Jude is probably not more than one page in your Bible. Very short book, no chapters, just verse numbers. So um, I do want to share with you something that it has been going on with me. Uh, as you know by now, if you've been listening to my podcast, you know that um, I am from the Reformed tradition. And specifically, I attend a Christian Reformed church. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that I was on staff, a pastoral staff at two other churches and it's a long story, uh, but it has been a journey for me uh, coming to the uh, Reformed way of thinking. But as I began to read my Bible, I came to these conclusions through a lot of prayer and Bible study and a lot of personal reflection. Like I said, it's a long story and it has been a journey. But in part because of those convictions, I had to step away from the churches that I was affiliated with because I simply was not on the same page as their understanding when it comes to the role of God in salvation, uh, the salvation of his people, and uh, really when it comes to things like what we call the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of grace. And so that journey <clears throat> has led me both physically and spiritually to a very small town in Montana. I live in Three Forks, Montana. And I put that out there just to say that we are hoping to plant a church in this area. I am a member of a Christian Reformed Church, and we are seeking ways that we might go about doing the Lord's work here in this local area of Three Forks. So there is no Reformed voice here in this small area, and the demographic is changing. So if you could just 
keep us in prayer on this as we move forward. We uh, don't know what the Lord may do. Um, we are, in large part, we're going to take a step of faith. We're going to see what happens. I've held Bible studies in my home and uh, found out that some of the folks that have been going to that Bible study in my home are actually moving out of state. I've actually had two families now move out of state, and these things happen. But this plant will be done in cooperation with my home church, and just keep us in prayer as we move forward, and let's see what the Lord does. Um, we want to be faithful. We want to go where God opens doors, and um, by the same token, if this is not something that he wants to do, then we certainly don't want to try and force things. So God's will be done. If he closes these doors, we trust that he's going to open something else. And by the same token, it appears as though the doors are open right in front of us now. So just keep us in prayer with that. And I, I greatly appreciate your prayers. So let's pause now <clears throat> for the reading and the hearing of the words of the one true and living God. May he bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Beginning now in the book of Jude, starting at verse 1. Follow along with me if you have your Bible. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming, up their own shame wandering stars from whom is reserved blackness of darkness forever now Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also saying behold the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, 
Remember words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that they that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, the only, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. I'd like to read that last verse again because I messed it up and I, I love the way it is right here. So I'm going to read it again, hopefully this time without any mistakes. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Powerful conclusion. So we have 25 verses here. Short book, but powerful. And as I've heard said before, dynamite comes in small packages. So we have just this 25 verses here, but it is packed. Of course, it is the word of the living God. And so we would expect, no matter how long or how short a book of the Bible may be, we would expect to find powerful things there because it is coming from God himself. So I thought it would be a good idea to start with an overview and a short introduction of this entire book on the whole, which will help us once we actually get into it because there's gonna be several episodes on this short book and we're gonna dive into it. And as I've already stated, you've noticed that there's no chapters here. And I would just remind you, as I've said before in the podcast, you know, when our Bible was originally uh, put together, the documents, the manuscripts that we get our scriptures from they did not have chapter and verse these things were added so that later folks like you and me would have a reference point where to start so i could call out to you the book the chapter and the verse and we could concentrate on that one particular section and these were letters and certainly when jude originally penned this he didn't put verse numbers in the letter that he was writing to the church. <clears throat> and I would just suggest that you probably don't put chapter and verse in your letters when you're writing to people or in your email. If you do, uh, may I suggest to you to shorten your letters. They shouldn't be long enough that they have chapter and verse in them. But that said, <clears throat> um, this book bears the name of its author, the name Jude. Jude. And there are at least eight different Judes in the New Testament. Eight different Judes. So how do we know which Jude wrote this letter? Well, let's talk about Jude for just a moment. The name Jude, and, you, and immediately, you know, skeptics love to point to things like this, and they'll go, you know, you've got to hate Judes. Well, which Jude was it? You don't have any way of knowing. Um, and these notions are really silly, and they're put together um, by folks that don't. Uh, the, these arguments, they're really based in ignorance, and I'm, I'm trying to be gentle about it. But people really, they don't know, they don't understand, they've not studied, and they don't get into these things. They only look for the ways that they can manipulate it to, to create some kind of an argument. And oftentimes it's just um, 
if you're familiar with Dr. James White or uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin, um, these are men who've had an influence on my life. I've never met them, but I have watched their uh, videos and debates and listened to them on their podcast and Apologia Radio if you ever want to go out there and, and take a look and take a lesson or, from these guys. But um, uh, one of the things that um, they point out um, are arguments that skeptics and atheists and uh, people with really um, evil intentions and uh, evil secular worldview, they have that particular worldview and then they come against scripture. And one thing that these men are really gifted with is the ability to point out inconsistencies in the argumentation. And so if you're coming to this with that kind of a viewpoint and you're saying something like, well, there's eight different Judes. You don't know which one wrote. Look at, you know, all the contradictions. I'm going to help you with that right now. So uh, it's actually not that uncommon at this time in history, uh, especially among the Hebrew people. It, uh, Jude was not an uncommon name. It was very common. Uh, just like we might say the Smiths or the Jones or, you know, John Doe or Joe Smith or something like that. It's a very common, very common name. And, of course, in Hebrew, it is Judah. It's actually Judah. Um, and that gets translated in Greek into Judas. And, of course, as soon as I say Judas, you think of the one who betrayed Christ, Judas Iscariot. And, um, of course, um, we translate that coming from Greek into English. We would say simply say Jude. So Jude, Judah, Judas, same root, same name. And so if we take a look through the scriptures, we can find these different uh, Judes and begin a process of elimination and narrow it down to authorship. So Luke chapter 6 verse 16 mentions two of Jesus' disciples by that name. Did you know there were two Judases that were among Jesus' disciples? Of course, one of them I've already mentioned, the one who betrayed Christ. But then there's another one who is the son of James. And using this same kind of process looking at internal proofs throughout scripture you can use the process of elimination and you'll be left with three possibilities um, that are good candidates possible choices for the author of the book of Jude and of these I believe the strongest case can be made for um, uh, yet another son of Joseph and Mary whose name was Jude uh, and if you are coming from a background in Roman Catholicism uh, this may be coming as a shock to you if I have any viewers or any listeners there out there who are listening to this or you're, you're seeing this and you go wait a minute I thought Mary was a virgin for her entire life and after all Roman Catholicism says that Mary was a virgin um, and I would just point out to you once again uh, this is a tradition and just as I had to let go of traditions that I held closely and I would have defended them but they are not in the scriptures and if uh, these conclusions were come to using scripture as a basis it was not done in a consistent way and the scriptures were taken out of context to support a tradition that was already uh, held on to prior to reading scripture. In other words, it was a preconceived idea, and then I would go to scriptures to support my preconceived idea. So we must avoid that. We must guard against that. And so uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was always a virgin for her entire life, but we know from the study of scripture that that simply is not the case. In fact, uh, Mary and her husband Joseph went on with life after the birth of Jesus. They had normal relations. 
that a husband and wife have, and Jesus actually did have brothers and sisters. He had family members, and of course these brothers and sisters would be uh, technically half-brothers and sisters because Jesus came from, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so what will happen among our uh, friends who are Roman Catholic, they'll look at these same passages of Scripture and they'll say, oh, well, those are spiritual brothers. Those are spiritual sisters. They're not physical blood relatives. And again, I would just caution you against that because to come to that conclusion, you have to take the Scriptures out of context, which means you're going to cling to a tradition over what's clearly written in the Scriptures. And there's also a lack of evidence indicating that the <clears throat> excuse me, the author of Jude is the Judas of Acts 15.22. And of course, Jude 1, the very first verse, identifies the author as the brother of James. And the only James that was known well enough in the early church is that prominent church leader of Acts 12, verse 17, and Acts 15, verse 13, and this particular James is the half-brother of Jesus. And he's referred to in Matthew 13, 55, Mark 6, 3, Galatians 1, 19. And so we see here that this Jude, who is the brother of James, is also a half-brother of Jesus. So Jude 17 also gives us a clue as to authorship. If you go down to verse 17, you'll see this word here in verse 17. The word is remember, and it's unlikely um, that this comment would be made by someone who was an apostle. So in other words, Jude, the Jude of that wrote this letter, did not uh, count himself among the apostles. So that eliminates the Jude who was, or the Judas, who was one of the disciples of Jesus. <clears throat> and so as we look at this verse 17, I wanted to focus on that word remember because in the Greek language, um, you can decline that. It's called declining uh, uh, Greek words, you can break them down and, and see what they're made of and uh, what figures of, or what parts of speech they are. And you know, just like in English, we have nouns and verbs and prepositional phrases and participles and all the rest. Well, it's very similar in uh, the Greek language, and what we have here is what's called an aorist imperative. And I don't say that. To brag, uh, believe me, if you listen to Dr. James White, um, I know nothing about Greek compared to <laughs> Dr. James White. Uh, he is amazing. God has gifted him in the study of languages and, and with Greek. And so I'm not pointing that out to say, you know, look at me. I'm some kind of a, a Greek scholar. Uh, but it is significant. Um, as it plays into this particular verse because there's an urgency here. There's an implied um, urgency about remembering. And he's, he's not just saying, you know, in a casual way to remember. He's emphasizing, you know, urgently, I want you to remember what the apostles have already taught you. And my point here is simply to say that the author's telling them, not to memorize something new. He's not coming to them with a new message. He's telling them to remember the words that were spoken before by the Lord's apostle. And so it seems unlikely um, that um, the author would um, write of himself, if he were an apostle, that he would make that kind of reference. He would say, remember what I taught you. Remember what I said before, but that's not what he says. He says, remember what the apostles, what the Lord's apostles have taught you already. And there's an urgency with that remembrance. So 
Um, and then um, I do use commentaries, and um, one of my go-to commentaries is the Bible Knowledge Commentary, and I'd like to read a quote to you about authorship. The most probable identification is that the author Jude was a half-brother of Christ, a son of Joseph and Mary, after Jesus. And this is the view I hold. Now, I'm making a big, big deal. I've spent quite a lot of time here talking about the authorship of this book. Authorship of Jude is important because we're given instructions directed by the Holy Spirit from someone who not only knew Jesus, but was a half-brother to him. Logically, if he is James's brother, this also makes him, if James is the brother of Jesus, then it also makes Jude a brother of Jesus. This is a big deal because it's first-hand knowledge of Jesus. And it gives Judah, or Judas, <laughs> sorry, Jude, <laughs> I said them all. It gives Jude a unique perspective and a unique authority. So while we do believe these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit, we also believe that there were human authors here. Obviously, that the Holy Spirit breathed upon these men, that he moved in them, and he used human authors to communicate his word and that's why I make a big deal about authorship and one of the things that I've emphasized since my very first episode on the very first podcast I've emphasized that the Bible is interwoven if you reject one part you're going to end up rejecting the whole because it is interconnected. One piece is a building block for another piece. Verse by verse, concept upon concept, precept upon precept, building blocks. And if you start to pull those blocks out, the entire book will crumble. And we are gonna get more into this, but you've already seen here in the New Testament in the book of Jude, right next to the very last book in our Bible, the way we have our Bible arranged, references all the way back to Genesis and other references too to Old Testament passages. And so if they're not accurate back then in Genesis, if they're not accurate in Exodus, which is another reference there, if they're not accurate in all those places where these things were said in the Old Testament, then you see Jude is not accurate because he is referring back to these things as a common knowledge that would be understood by his audience and be taken as fact. So, dear friend, if you are studying the Word of God and you think, well, I can believe this part, but I really have a hard time with this part, I would challenge you on that. Keep it in context. And do a study, and you will find that you can't have one without the other. You see, if the Bible is wrong about Sodom and Gomorrah, if it's wrong about the angels who did not keep their proper abode in Genesis, then it's wrong about Jude. And I hope you can see that, and I hope you can make that connection. So what's the purpose of the book of Jude? Well, it's a great question because um, the book is so small and I'm spending so much time on it. What could possibly be contained in these 25 verses? Well, for those of us who've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and God has brought us to life, we understand that there's not a single verse, there's not a single word that's in our Bible by accident. Jude was written to combat the apostasy which had already found its way into the early church. In fact, here's a quote from Charles Swindoll. Jude commands his readers to find their voices and proclaim the truth. That's why this book is so important. Because Jude invites all of us now to find our voices and proclaim the truth. And friends, in our culture today, if there has ever been a call 
upon Christians to find their voice and proclaim the truth. That time is now. Where we are in a world where we have someone now on our Supreme Court who, when pressed, could not even define what a human woman is. And of course, the reason she's not a, a stupid woman. She's very educated, very learned. She's had children of her own. She knows what a woman is. But you see, she is committed to an ideology which is in rebellion against her creator. And because she is so deeply committed to this way of thinking, which is secularism and true rebellion against God, she can't answer a simple question because, friends, when you reject the truth of God, the only path left for you is rebellion against him, and that will lead to insanity. And that is what we see in our world today. So find your voice, dear Christian, and stand for the truth. Do it with love. Do it with patience. Do it with humility and understanding. But do not compromise the truth of the living God. Our nation needs people. People like you. People like me. Who will stand and speak the truth. Truth to leadership. Truth to your neighbors. Truth to your friends. Speak God's truth. It's the only truth that there is. So this is a letter of warning not only to the church of old, but to the church of today. In fact, it says the church in the last days. And that's to say the church of the last 2,000 years. And again, we get into a tradition that I held to, believing that I was living in the last days. But I, I use the same words, but I assigned a different meaning to it. And I would suggest for your own study, and you can take a look at this on your own time, but the last days really began uh, when the church was born, when the church was actually born. So for the last 2,000 years, we have been in the last days. And you say, 2,000 years, that's a long time for last days. I mean, last means the end, right? When it's something is last. But friends, I would just simply say, study the scriptures. And let me assure you that 2,000 years of church history, it is nothing compared to all of eternity. So Jude appeals to the readers to, to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Because they had something back then that we are facing today. They had it in the church back then. We have it in the church today. And it's called false teachers. So we see that from the very, very beginning of the church, False teachers had already found their way into the local churches. And Jude tells his readers here that he was going to write them concerning their common salvation to encourage them to earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered to them by the apostles. And he wants to warn them against false teachers that had crept in and to exhort them to keep themselves in the love of God. And we also read in verse 6 something about apostate angels. These apostate angels who rebelled against God. And again, I would take you back to the book of Genesis. If you go back and hear our Bible study on the book of Genesis, we were in Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> and we read there uh, that something very evil and satanic happened. The Bible tells us that the Benai Elohim the sons of God, which is a phrase that was used uh, throughout the Old Testament for angels. It says that the Benai Elohim saw the daughters of men and took from them wives for themselves. And so I see this, uh, what Jude is talking about here in the book of Jude. I believe it's a direct reference back to Genesis chapter 6. And uh, he is probably, um, almost certainly, alluding to this apocryphal book, the book of Enoch. And, um, and I, just my personal conviction is, again, 
I don't have answers for everything, but I will share what I believe. Um, I see that what happened back in Genesis, there was some kind of a commingling from these apostate angels and the daughters of humanity. That is what the scripture says. I know that uh, I've read the arguments. I know that there are scholars who say things like this was the godly line of Seth. I even found it in one of my textbooks. And there really wasn't much of an explanation on it. It was just kind of taken for granted that everyone knows that these Benai Elohim, that sons of God, is actually a phrase for the righteous line of Seth. Um, I think it's a stretch. And I know what they teach in seminary. I know what the scholars say. Uh, I just, again, see a lack of scriptural proof for that. What I see is that human beings are not comfortable with what it actually says. And so they have to come up with a way to interpret it in a way that, you know, for the first, I don't even remember, but I'm going to say 1,800 years of church history, they never thought of it that way. So this concept of it being the line of Seth is a relatively new tradition that has been kind of read onto scripture. But the point is, it doesn't really matter. Um, there's different takes on that. People have debated it and people have come up with some really uh, wacky things. You know, you can look these things up on the internet. I would just exercise extreme caution if I were you. But there is this book, the book of Enoch, and it is not canonized. It's not part of our scripture, but yet it appears that Jude is making a reference to it because in the book of Enoch, um, it kind of um, expands the story of what happened there in Genesis 6. So um, the, I would just remind you that the book of Enoch is not scripture. It's not inspired. Now, <clears throat> no matter what Jude's source was and no matter the specifics of what happened there in Genesis 6, the point that Jude is making here is that false teachers and those who follow them should take a lesson from history's apostates. And one of those apostates were, were these apostate angels. And he seemed to know the story of these fallen angels and about their sin and he knew that this story, this was um, a truth that was well known uh, and accepted among his readers. So he is, again, he's appealing to a common knowledge that he knows about, they know about, and they would accept that. They would understand the point that he was making, which is just as these apostate angels had judgment brought upon them, apostates in the church are going to have judgment brought upon them. And that's the point here. Um, and he doesn't really explain it too much. He just kind of expects, like I said, that his audience is going to know what he's talking about. So I want to be clear that um, the book of Enoch can be referenced by Jude, just as Paul referenced Greek poets, but it does not imply that these sources are themselves inspired by God. And so I'd like to point out some places throughout the Bible for you here, because this isn't the only place where it happens, where there's a reference to extra biblical writings. There's references to beliefs and traditions that are held by the people. One such place is 2 Timothy 3, verses 8 and 9, and it states, now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So here we have a scripture that names these two Egyptian magicians who opposed uh, Moses before Pharaoh, in Exodus chapter 7 and Exodus chapter 8. So, if you go back and you read Exodus 7 and you read Exodus 8, you won't find the names of the magicians listed there. You'll just, it'll just tell you that there were these magicians in the Pharaoh's court and they uh, did some form of magic there uh, in the presence of Pharaoh and in the presence of Moses. 
Moses. So here Paul names him. He gives him a name. So does this mean that Paul was affirming tradition? Because I've already made several comments here about tradition versus scripture. Or does it mean that Paul is using the well-known traditional view that's held by his uh, audience? He's using that to illustrate a point. And I'd suggest that Paul's intention here is not to validate the tradition, but simply to illustrate exactly what he states. And I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but what he says is, just as these magicians failed, these um, people who reject the truth of Christ uh, are going to fail also. And we also find pagan poets are quoted in Acts chapter 17, 28, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Titus 1, 12. So does this mean that these ungodly poets were inspired by the Holy Spirit? No, it, that's not what it means. It means that the Holy Spirit inspired human authors who wrote the books of the Bible and they were using a common knowledge, again, of the audience as an illustration. And by the same token, we find a quote from the devil in, in the narratives in Genesis. Um, so does that mean that Satan's words were inspired? Because it's in the Bible. And obviously, Satan's words are not inspired. It's not the inspired living word of God. That's not what's going on here. What's being recorded is the truthfulness of the event that is what is inspired. And again, I'm going to read a quote to you from R.C. Sproul. R.C., who, again, a man I've never met, and he has gone on to be with the Lord, but a man who was uh, just uh, just a hero of the faith, in my opinion. A brilliant man, just on genius level, uh, in my opinion opinion. I don't know that he was a genius, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised. Incredibly gifted by God and had a tremendous impact on my life in stripping away uh, traditions that I had held to so strongly. But this is a quote from R.C. He says, the inclusion of such quotations in the inspired canon for illustrative purposes or as an appeal to conventional wisdom does not imply that the apocryphal and non-biblical documents were themselves inspired, nor that everything in them is being endorsed by the Bible. It is the use of the particular reference that is inspired, not the source that is the reference. So, he summed it up a lot better than I just did, but I gave you examples there. You can certainly look them up on your own time, but just remember that it's the use of those references that is the part that's inspired. So, speaking of other resources which are not divinely inspired, Jude 9 speaks of a dispute between the archangel Michael and Satan, and they were disputing over the body of Moses. And this raises the question, well, where is that in the Bible? What do we know of the dispute, and why does Jude even bring it up? Well, I'm so very glad you asked. Tradition taught that Archangel, the Archangel Michael uh, was sent to bury Moses' body. And remember that this is tradition. Jude assumes his readers are familiar with his teaching from the pseudopographical book, The Assumption of Moses. Dear listener, this is just my belief, and I believe in this case that this tradition is fact. So regardless, there are two points to learn from this verse. First off, some Christians enjoy rebuking the devil. And I grew up in a tradition where it was common to hear people say while they were praying, devil, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And I would just emphasize that while these people meant well, uh, they're not instructed anywhere in scripture to do something like this. In fact, when we are praying, especially when we're praying out loud in a public setting, we're praying in front of others, I would just ask the question, you know, why why are we praying to the devil? Why are we speaking to the devil in the first place? I'm praying to God. I'm not praying to the devil. And um, so the point simply here is that even Michael did not take it upon himself to rebuke the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And 
you know, though powerful and authoritative, uh, he did not dare dispute with Satan. This doesn't mean that Michael was afraid of Satan because he certainly was not afraid of Satan. But it does mean that Michael placed the whole matter with God and said, God rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So I would just caution people, don't go around rebuking the devil. You're not instructed in scripture to do that. So the second lesson for apostates who in their arrogance slander creations of God is this. Think of false teachers who truly, even to this day, they blaspheme every authority above their own. In fact, you will hear them say things like, do not touch God's anointed. I'm God's anointed. And if you don't receive the words that I'm prophesying or that I'm teaching to you, if you don't receive it from me, you're not coming against me. You're coming against the Holy Spirit. Friends, beware of this kind of talk. Um, it, it, this kind of stuff comes from so-called teachers and preachers. You find them on the uh, broadcast, so-called Christian broadcasting uh you know, Jude used that commonly held teaching and the tradition of Michael's dispute with uh, the devil over Moses' body to illustrate just how far that these false teachers had gone and the magnitude of their blasphemies. And it's the same thing today. You know, who am I talking about? I'm talking about Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar, and I could go on and on and on. They are charlatans, they are false teachers, and it it's not Christian. It's not Christian, and you need to stay away from it, friends. They are fake. They are blasphemers who are presenting a false gospel. You know, why is it? And they'll tell you this. They'll come right out and say it. You need to send me your money. The only way that God is going to prosper you, the only way he's going to bless you, is if you sow a seed of faith into this ministry. Friends, why do they do that? If that's true, if the only way that you're going to get prospered is by giving to them, it would seem that they would want to be prospered, right? Right? So why don't they give money to you and see... If they give all their money to you, then God's just going to prosper them, right? Ever thought of it that way? No, they want to receive money. And they are, again, they're fast talkers. They have charismatic personality. They're able to draw people in and people are searching. And so they give money to these organizations. So speaking of that, let me just say here, if you're going to give money, and I suggest if you are a Christian, that you do give of your finances. It is a form of worship to the living God. I would suggest that you give to your local church. Why? Because somebody has to pay the electric bill. Do you like having electric lights? Do you like having air conditioning or heat? Do you like having a paid staff at your church that does things like provide counsel, provide for services like weddings and funerals, someone who would pray with you, someone who is studying the word of God so that they can encourage you and minister the word and sacrament. Are those things important? Do you expect those people to provide those services for free? What about in your local community? Maybe your church is involved with some kind of a benevolence ministry or there's a private school or there's other things that they do within the community to minister to people locally, that's where you need to put your money. Put your money in your local church where you can see it, where you can have some say in how things are done. Don't blindly give your money away to these false teachers. Um, anyway, enough of that. So the point is simply that there were false teachers back then and there are false teachers in the church today. So let's take a few minutes and let's consider Jude verses 14 and 15. These speak of, again, of the prophecy of Enoch or Enoch. Uh, where is this prophecy found and why does Jude bring it up again? 
Well, the prophecy is found in the book of Enoch. And I mentioned it earlier. It's an uh, uh, apocryphal writing. And Jude's use of this reference gives him common ground with his audience once again. Just because Jude brings it up does not mean, again, that the book of Enoch is inspired on the whole. But this prophecy, though not found in the Old Testament, could have come directly from God to Jude, confirming and validating this single prophecy found in the book of Enoch. We do believe, after all, that the Holy Spirit is the one writing this. He's using Jude to do it. He could have spoken to Jude and affirmed, yes, um, I actually did speak through Enoch in this way in the old times. So just because Jude mentions it here, it's a reference once again, and it doesn't validate all these uh, apocryphal writings, uh, nor does it really affect the doctrine of inspiration in any negative way. Jude mentions it here to point to Christ's return and judgment of ungodly sinners who have spoken against Christ. The last two verses are of particular value to me personally. Verse 24 provides me with an assurance of my salvation. It's not just Christ's victory over apostates that we're talking about here. It's only in finding my life and the truth of Christ will I be protected from following false teaching. It's only Jesus who can keep me from falling. It's only Jesus who can present me faultless before his Father. <clears throat> and I also find in these uh, verses that Jesus has great joy in presenting me to his Father, not only for himself, but for me also. And then verse 25, which you may recall, I actually stopped and read it over again because I knew I was going to be talking about it, and I had kind of messed it up there in the reading. But it gives God all the glory, all the majesty, all dominion, all power. And I want to be clear here. When I use that phrase, give God the glory or give him the majesty and dominion and power, I'm not giving him that. It's something that he already has. I'm simply recognizing it. I'm affirming it. I'm saying yes and amen. He is the only wise God. And it's that verse that confirms my never-ending security in Jesus Christ, the one who is victorious. He is our Lord. And so with that said, dear listener, we'll be moving through this again, verse by verse. We're going to do a study in this powerful book. I just wanted to give an overview. I wanted to address some of those things right from the beginning. This next episode uh, that's coming up after this, it's going to provide us with an outline. And it's just one way of examining these 25 verses, which I hope will be a blessing to you. So until then, I ask that you keep us in prayer as we continue to move forward with next steps in our church plan. And please tell others about the podcast, The Forge, and now this YouTube channel. God bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you, and give you peace. Amen.